We're going to look at what it means to be the church as we continue to unpack the book of James. And my friends, if the church, by God's grace, acts as it ought to act, then there's nothing like it in the world. Nothing like it in terms of its power and ability to draw people in to find the hope and love and comfort that their souls so deeply want. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word found in the book of James, chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. James, carried along by the Holy Spirit, writes these words. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Lord, so rich, sent your son to be so poor that we who believe in him might live forever with you, with immeasurable riches, knowing no need for even hope, never speaking again, I hope, when we're in heaven. Lord, would you do a work in our lives this morning that would cause us to love the way you would want us to love you first? But through loving you, that vertical relationship, it extends profoundly into this world. So show us, Lord, what it looks like that we might be the church, truly the church, as you've called us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the classic argument of James, which has been debated centuries. Faith versus works, what does it mean? And it's really not that complicated. We are saved by faith alone, but we are not saved by a faith that is alone. What that means is if you're truly a Christian, your life reflects it. Let me say it this way. Faith on the inside will reveal itself on the outside. Faith on the inside, true faith, is going to reveal itself on the outside. So that if you are a true Christian, Somebody who has professed faith in Jesus Christ, you're depending upon him alone for your salvation. If that is deep inside you, that is faith inside you, then it is going to be seen on the outside. Not perfectly this side of heaven, and you know that. But it's going to be seen. There will be fruit. Jesus and John said, it is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, so proving to be my disciples. So James takes us to this place where he talks about faith. And listen to what he says. What good is it, my brothers, if someone has faith but does not have works? Were you listening carefully? Were you? Did you see that I left something out? When we leave words out, it matters. You see, James didn't say what I just said. I said, what good is it, my brothers, if someone has faith but does not have works? Do you see, I left out the word says. James says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, someone claims he has faith, 
but does not have works. This is not about us simply saying we have faith. This is about true faith. And what is on the inside of us will be seen on the outside. That's true personally. If you look in my life, as a person I profess faith, then there should be signs that I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. What's on the inside will be seen on the outside. It's true personally. But it's also true corporately. It's true not just of the individuals here today, but the individuals that make up this large corporate body called the church. This one small expression of the larger church. And what that means is, if we have faith on the inside, it will be seen on the outside. And when it's not, there's a problem. When it's not seen, there's sin or even potentially truly non-belief. It's people who just say they have faith, but they don't. And that's why the warning is so strong. Two weeks ago, I talked about favoritism, which I'm going to do again today. I told you I was going to. And I'm going to introduce another part, which gets to this text, which is about phoniness. Favoritism and phoniness. Here in the middle, James comes to this place where he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? In the middle of this context, he's talked about our relationship with the poor. Our relationship with the poor and the rich, and then our relationship with actually caring for the poor who is in need. Favoritism and phoniness. This morning, most of it's going to be focused on favoritism again. And this is important, because if the church acts like the church... And we as the members of this church don't show favoritism. It's going to be so attractive to a broken world. When people come through these doors and they experience probably what they didn't expect to experience, people, you, individuals, turning towards them, welcoming them, offering them a place to sit, engaging them in relationships, it's going to be what they didn't expect. It's beautiful. It's what it must be. It must be. And that's why you matter. Every person here who professes faith in Jesus, who is truly a believer, okay, you matter. You may not think you matter. You may be sitting at a distance. You might not be as engaged as other people in this church, but you matter if you're here. And the reason is because these people who might come in may choose to sit next to you. How are you going to respond? That's what we're going to talk about for a little bit today. I asked you this question two weeks ago. If we know favoritism is wrong, then why do we show favoritism? If we know it's wrong, and clearly it is, you can't argue that it's not. If we know it's wrong, then why do we continue to show favoritism? I asked you to ask yourself that question, to pray through that question. And I'm sure some of you did. Some of you nodded and said you would, but you've probably gotten busy. So I'm bringing the question back up. But to be fair... I want to share a few things that the Lord revealed to me about the favoritism in my own life. And I want to tell you ahead of time that it really makes me sad. It makes me feel shame, which I then take to the Lord and ask him to remove. But it's there. Let me explain it this way. Um, I'm a dermatologist dream patient. And the reason is because 
my parents didn't know about sunscreen or were too lazy to apply it. I'm not sure, but it was one or the other. Then in high school and college, I worked outside from seven in the morning till usually five or six in the evening, and I didn't use sunscreen. I'm a dermatologist's dream. If my wife calls our dermatologist and says she'd like an appointment, that appointment will be three months, four months, maybe even five months out. If I call, I'm in the next week. Somewhere in their system it says, take care of him. He's got stuff on his body that we need to pay attention to. And it's true. And so what happens is I will see something, and then I will watch it. And a lot of you are like me. And then you go, maybe that needs to be looked at. So a number of years ago, I was introduced to something called Mohs surgery. Right here, this is part of my chest, right there on the collarbone, the spot that was exposed to sun forever. I saw it, it looked a little different. By the way, it wasn't really that gross. Just, just a little different. And my dermatologist saw it and she said, yeah, that's not good. We're gonna have to go in and take a look at that. Mohs surgery, if you've never heard of it, it's a precise, very precise, surgical technique that simply uh, removes thin layers of cancer-causing or cancer-containing skin, one small layer at a time, and they keep going deeper and deeper and deeper until the cancer is gone. It's progressive. One layer is removed at a time, a biopsy is done, even while you wait in the, the medical area, and then they go again deeper and deeper. This is what God does in our life as he sanctifies us, and this is what he's been doing in my life as it relates to favoritism. And sometimes I need God to reveal it to me in such a specific way where it, it really does reveal the darkness of my heart. It really does reveal that there's favoritism there when I don't want there to be, and I don't. I want you to lean in because the things I say are probably true of you as well, and they might not be. You may, maybe by God's grace, you've been delivered from these, but I want you to hear what the Lord revealed to me, and there are five. First, when I ask the question, why, knowing that favoritism is wrong, do I continue to commit it? These are the five things the Lord revealed to me. Number one, I care more about what rich and powerful people think of me than I do the poor. I care more about what the rich and powerful think of me than I do the poor. How do I know that's true? I care more about impressing rich people than I do empowering the poor. I care more about offending a rich person or a powerful person than I do dishonoring the poor. What's at the core of that? Identity, actually. I don't care so much about where they sit in the sanctuary. In fact, I would be upset if I saw any of us moving someone of rich wealth and power to a place and dishonoring the poor. I would despise that. But the Lord began to do surgery on me, so to speak. And the question became, if I received an email from a rich and powerful person at the same time I received one from the poor, 
who do I respond to first? Will I just take them as they came? Maybe, but what's going on in my heart as I take those emails? If someone wants to get on my schedule, does their power and influence or their lack of power and lack of influence change the way I respond? I hope not, but I'm afraid at times it does. I care more about what the rich and powerful think of me than the poor. And when I think that way, I show favoritism. I don't always think that way, but it's there, my friends, and it's probably there in your life too. Number two, I think the rich and powerful have more to offer than the poor. In fact, I was trained this way. I was trained this way in ministries, and some of you were too. And I want to tell you, it might have worked on a practical level, on a strategic level, but I was trained as a youth pastor, pursue the popular kids. If the popular kids come, everybody else will come. That sounds good. And in some ways, you might be a part of something that worked that way. But I want to tell you, it's not biblical. You could say, pursue the popular kids and maybe more will come. But pursue the, the poor kids too. Pursue everyone. That's the message. Because Jesus did not do it the way we do it. Jesus did not select his 12 with that strategy. You have to see that and agree with that. That's just not the way Jesus did it. I, though, when I'm showing favoritism, think the rich and powerful have more to offer than the poor. And this goes for me personally. The truth is the rich and powerful do have more to offer me. They can offer me things, places to go, gifts, conversation that stretches my mind. Personally, there's a benefit, is there not? But it's also corporate. We can tend to think that the rich and powerful are the most important in our midst. Strategically for ministry. And my friends, that's not biblical. Number three, I conform to a culture that thinks the same way. And that's you. Here's how I know. If a handful of poor people enter into our sanctuary, and they're going to, by the way, I believe that. Get ready. That's not a threat. That's exciting. If, if a handful come in, and a handful of really rich and powerful people come in, the response is interesting. I hear about those people. Did you know so-and-so was here? I'm tempted to conform to this world just as you are. And the world says to honor the rich above the poor. That's what the world says. That's why the church should be so radically different. That's why James is saying, this can't be in the church. If you treat a rich person and a powerful person this way, it's dishonoring the poor. You cannot do that. Don't do that. So I conform to the culture. Fourth one. Let me repeat real quick. I care more about what the rich and powerful think about me. I think the rich and powerful have more to offer. I conform to the culture and what it thinks. Fourth, I'm more comfortable talking to people like me. Are you? Be honest. I don't have a problem entering into conversations with people in the poorer parts of our city. I don't have a problem walking down the streets and into their homes. But I'm more comfortable talking to people like me. And guess what? I'm rich. I'm a pastor, but I'm rich. I live in one of the wealthiest zip codes in the entire world. Many of you do as well. And if you live in Dallas and you're in part of the city, we're rich. 
There are poor in our midst. I'm not saying there aren't. But most of us have so much. And I'm just more comfortable talking to people like me. But the fifth one is the most powerful and most painful. I, when I show favoritism, I don't see people the way God sees people. I don't see you and those outside these walls the way God sees people when I show favoritism. I look at the outside. He looks at the inside. Now, the good news is God is so full of grace and mercy that he does this kind of surgery on our, on our souls to show us how dark it can be. And here's the truth. The sin in me, as it relates to favoritism, is deeper in me than I can see. What that means is that the gospel is not as deep in me as I think. I really want you to listen. Favoritism is a big deal. It does not reveal the glory of the gospel, the grace and beauty of the gospel. And when we show favoritism, there's a cost. The cost is twofold. First, it's this. The cost of these attitudes, which I've expressed to you, which I'm confident that you share many of them, if not all of them, the cost first is to the poor. If we show favoritism to the rich, James says we dishonor the poor. If we show favoritism, we dishonor people that are made in God's image. If we show favoritism, we fail to relieve the suffering that we can see. That's what James is talking about in this text. We might even say, be well fed and be warm. We might even write a little check, but we're not engaging at the level we could and should, and so it's phony. When we show favoritism, the cost is that we fail to offer people what they really need, a relationship with Christ, a relationship with Christ's people. We fail to let them use their gifts we fail to love and lead as Jesus did. That's the cost of honoring the rich above the poor. But there's also a cost for the rich. If we are showing the rich favoritism, we are enabling them to see themselves differently then the Lord sees them. And suddenly they begin to believe what we're showing them, whether it's in word or actions, that actually they do deserve the better seat. That actually they, they should say occasionally to people, do you know who I am? When we as the church show that type of favoritism, the cost is that we are enabling the rich to keep from seeing their deep need. That in the eyes of Christ, we're all the same. We all have the same need. 
Spiritually, we all weren't sick, but we were dead. We were on the same level ground in deep, deep need of our Savior's rich and powerful grace. So let me say this again. The sin is deeper in me than I can see. And the gospel is not as deep in me as I think. So what happens is that the Lord reveals again the gospel to us. He reminds us of who we are and who he is. He reminds us, as Lloyd Kim said last week, we're beggars. Showing other beggars where to find food. And if you have faith, you've truly professed faith in Jesus, that faith is in you, then guess what? It will be shown. And the way it is shown on the outside is that people enter in and they see it. So just imagine this for a moment. What can this church be? Well, this church can be everything that Jesus meant for it to be because he's the head of the church. All those things that I just said about myself reveal that you're following a pastor who limps. You're following one who's tempted towards seeing things incorrectly. But I promise you this, by his grace and for his glory, I hate that about myself. I want so much for the Lord to just, con- to just extract that till it's gone no more. And my hope is that he's doing it. Because if he wasn't, I would have nothing to say. We would have already moved on past this part of James. But I can't. Because the benefit that this church can offer to this city and to the world is that we are a people so overwhelmed by the beauty and glory of a very rich, the ultimate wealth of God be poured out for us that we might be in relationship with him for all eternity. And I know we believe that. And when we believe that and it's deep inside us, then it goes wide. If you remember the definition last week, For the word extend, it's it's this. Listen again. Extend is a verb with three possibilities. To cause to cover a large area, it extends. Number two, to hold something out to someone. Or three, to exert oneself to the uttermost. All around this church are poor people. There are poor people just blocks north of us. Their poverty is not material. It's spiritual. They don't even know they need Jesus. People like them live to the east and to the south and to the west. There are also people very, very poor materially, north, east, south, and west as well. They're everywhere. And God has strategically placed this one small expression of his church called PCPC right here. And I believe if we take the the gospel seriously and we believe these things and we repent of the things we should repent of, that word is going to extend. That this is a place where you will be welcomed, just as our bulletin says. These doors will open wide and what you will see on the inside is something that comes outside. It is a faith that these people have 
where their eyes are not just looking for the people they know that they're most comfortable talking to, but they see others that are new, not so much like us, and they want to help. Now, that's where we're going next week. That's what this passage is about. And I want you to think about it. What James is saying in the text that was just read this morning is that the temptation for Christians is to be phony. It is to see need in people's lives, and specifically people even in the body, and to say things like, bless you, peace be with you, but then do nothing. We're going to talk about that next week. And I want you to begin to think about your specific role in this body because you matter. If you profess to be a Christian and that faith is inside you, then what comes outside matters and people will be impacted as a result. And what is it we want them to see? We want them to see the gospel so deep inside us that we cannot stop, stop thinking about what we have seen and heard. And this is it. This is it. Give me one minute. Listen, everyone, look. The God of the universe who made you, who made these babies to baptize this morning, who gave these parents these children, who brought them to this church, the God who planted the seeds that produced these flowers, the God who has made everything, who knows everything, who is all-powerful and all-present, that God created a man and a woman. And that man and the woman rebelled against God, and the condition of sin entered into this world. And from the beginning of the Bible to the end, from Genesis to Revelation, God gives us the story of reconciliation, of redemption, of God pursuing his people. And in order for his wrath to be satisfied, for justice to be served, there, there had to be a penalty paid. And this was the person of Jesus Christ. Man of sorrow. What a name. And this person came... Thou, thou who is rich beyond all splendor, he came to this earth that he created. He walked upon this earth that he made, seeing the people that he created. And then he went all the way to Golgotha. Nailed to the cross, he died. Before he died, he said, it is finished. So rich, becoming so poor, that all who trust in him would be eternally rich. We actually would be favored by him. But in order to know him for all eternity, not one of us brought anything. He came after us, beggars in eternal need. And if you've professed faith in Jesus, you're his. That going deep into our heart extends outside of us to this world. You, child of God, member of this church, friend of this church, fellow believer, you matter. 
Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for dying for the people of this church. For saints, Lord, who yet know that they belong to you. Lord Jesus Christ, would you do a work in us that would transform our hearts to love other people the way you've loved us. Do that work of exposing in us those things, Lord, which are ugly, which reveal that the sin is deeper and the gospel is not as deep as we thought. Change us, give us hope, and let this place, O Lord, shine so brightly in this dark world that people will see that they're welcome here. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.